No my hearty my and welcome to season four of the Seed Pod, a podcast where we explore the wonders of nature and our connections to the earth. Each episode, we invite guests to share their stories of nature connection and to nerd out with us about everything from mahinga kai food gathering to landscape planning and bringing nature inside. I'm your host and fellow nature enthusiast, Sean Crowley, and I'm excited to dive deep into the natural world with all of you. So sit back, relax, and let's get lost in the beauty of nature. Kia ora koutou. welcome back to The Seed Pod. This is episode 23 and I'm here with Rose. Welcome Rose. Hello, my name is Rose Todd. I'm a second year landscape architecture student. I am heavily inspired by nature and everything that I do. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Amazing. Thanks so much for joining me. Now, I'd love to start off with a story from your nature connection journey. So would you like to share a story with us? I think everyone remembers the story of like getting a bean and growing it for the first time at school and kind of like the wonder and the the excitement as a little kid when you see, ah, the bean's opening up, it's sprouting, it's growing. So I think everyone has that sort of shared collective memory. But another significant thing that I can remember from my past is when I was actually living in China and it was a super industrial and urban area where there was a lot of a lot of tall buildings not a lot of trees and I remember seeing this lady one morning kind of like in a smog covered city uh pruning a gorse bonsai so gorse the plant we associate with you know weeds here in New Zealand but sort of there that one little nature lifeline that that lady had she was maintaining it so beautifully so that was I think a little introduction to how people care for plants having the sort of inside and with us and part of our our living space I think that was the first thing that snapped my brain into looking at plants as sort of a part of the family more than just something that you walk past yeah I absolutely love that. Plants as part of the family, and I would have to agree. Having beautiful plants everywhere amongst our home, it's always, sometimes it can be a struggle to keep them alive, but we care about them so much, and being able to watch them grow and sprout new leaves is always such an exciting time. Now, you've talked about plants. You love to bring nature inside yourself as well. So would you like to tell us about how you're keeping your indoor plants alive? Because they are absolutely thriving. Are there any secrets? I think people want to sort of have a plant that is beautiful in a Pinterest sort of way, which is nice. It's nice to do. But oftentimes we we'll pick species, we're taking them out of their natural environment, right, where they really love to be, and we're kind of shoving it in this little weird device called a, a planter or a pot, and we're saying, okay, cool, now do your thing, you have to be able to thrive here and, and do the most, but you have to go to work with where it's come from, so if you pick a plant that is from like a super tropical environment, and you're planning on putting it in a cold, drafty hallway that's dark, She's not going to love you for that. Rather than trying to grab a plant from a plant store 
and trying to sort of fit it into whatever place they find beautiful. If if they can sort of work with the plant, keep an eye on its leaves. They tell you a lot. Treat it like another living thing when you first get it. And then any other plant that you bring in, you'll be able to understand what it needs because you, you've looked at those cues. Keeping them alive, I mean, obviously, people like water, a whole bunch. If you're living in the city, rainwater is better than using tap water. Other than that, yeah, keep an eye, just like interact with it at all. <laughs> Amazing. And you talk about some of those signs. Can you give us some examples of what that might look like? Yeah, I think a common problem with indoor houseplants specifically is where we situate them in terms of sunlight because we can either put it direct you know sort of like a soft leafed plant directly in a window and it just gets totally fried accidentally or uh, we sort of put a cactus in a dark room I think if you're going to change anything about where you've got a plant just do it slowly and check out where the plant actually came from is a big one it is a practice to take care of plants I think bonsai is a really beautiful example of like the historical relationship people have with keeping plants inside and it depends what you're going to use it for if it's purely aesthetic or if it's something that you're going to eat from and you have a totally different kind of interaction with it so for aesthetic plants only it's its own thing it's got its own wants and desires so if you're going to try to keep it somewhere it doesn't like it will moot or shoot out a vine in a weird way but that's kind of like the joy of it like you're interacting with a little creature that is on a totally different time scale to you and sort of its own sort of agenda going on which is I think in terms of the plant community um like indoor house plant NZ is a massive Facebook group we, we kind of love to see it when plants do weird stuff it's, it's actually joyful when when we figure out oh there's it's wanted um you know slightly less sunlight and then it's thrived and, and making those discoveries with each plant is why we have them more so than the aesthetic yeah a hundred percent and they do they do what they want right and it's always cool to see what that is and when you do figure it out and and you're able to help them thrive it's so cool to see those little shoots sprouting up out the sides and and new leaves and and beautiful little features their own little personalities as well I love to be surrounded by that beautiful green but also like outside in the garden as well like being able to plant plants into a garden is such a precious thing to be able to do and and not many people have that opportunity to do that as well a lot of people don't own their own places so being able to have an opportunity to connect to nature inside but also heading along to those planting days for the community and being able to watch those plants grow over time and some people at planting days before I've watched them bring along their little tiny babies and then when they're toddlers they measure themselves against the tree when they're a little bit older they measure themselves again and it's just so cool to see that connection forming with that growth through not only the little child but also the plant as well so I think it's such a precious thing now you have actually worked in the plant industry would you like to share a bit more about this I think when you think about the plant industry you imagine it's really really green and very sustainable 
maybe a moral good even, but it is good to be aware about how big retail stores are propagating and sharing plants for the profit of plants, not for the well-being of plants or for the, just the pure joy of plants themselves. Like you said, most people don't have their own yard. Like a lot of people are renters these days. So indoor plants are a massive industry because it's one of the only ways that we can bring the green into our life. But there's the other side of it where we also view plants as sometimes a bit like disposable and it's really easy to just go buy another one at insert plant store here. <laughs> and it's it's not very sustainable to keep up with that. It's sort of like fast fashion. Like if you buy something with fast fashion it's not inherently bad if you keep on if you hold on to it for a long time the problem is if you you buy it and just cycle it out next season same with plants obviously there are some plants that are seasonal which you have to keep buying um mm. we're talking about the ones that are more rare tropical plants that people are really into now plants that are not from new zealand plants that they might chuck in the yard afterwards and then end up being a bit of an invasive species problem mm-hmm. So the plant industry is actually quite a big biosecurity hazard in many ways. And also the mass use of fertilizer doesn't help. So just being cognizant of, yeah, it's a good green thing to do to have a plant in your house, but it's also not something that is, you you can't just replace it. I think take care of it if you've got it. (laughs) Don't feel bad if it dies, but it's not the kind of thing that you should throw out when you're done with it. But also learning about like the science behind plants is a journey that I think everyone would want to take. Um, the plant industry, you know, they don't want you to propagate things because that means that you have more of the product that they they want to sell. So if you really want to stick it to the man, I recommend learning about propagation, where you can get your fertilizer that's not from maybe a bought place, something that you can make at home. And those DIYs, they're everywhere and they're so much more fun. So I think if you're uh, looking into getting into houseplants, start with those DIYs. And don't spend money. Don't spend a whole lot of extra stuff on the bells and whistles. Yeah, definitely. I absolutely love propagating plants. Something that I've found is that there's a lot of plants that naturally pop up that you're able to translocate into the areas that you know are more suitable for those plants in terms of maybe it is aesthetics in some ways or maybe it's um, it could cause damage later on and you'd have to cut it down. Obviously, you wouldn't want it in that place. But in terms of house plants as well, being able to trade plants and gift plants is such a wonderful thing. I always love when I'm gifted a plant of any kind. I just think it's one of the most wholesome things to be given. And it's something, as you say, it's not going to be trashed. It's something that I'm going to really take care of and look after and do as much as I can to keep that alive because it is, as you say, a living thing. And so I wonder if you have like any plants that you have propagated that you'd like to share maybe some of that journey with people. See if I can think of a like the earliest example of a plant I maybe propagated. For plant people out there, they might know this is a bit bad that I did this, but I, I don't recommend it. But this is how I first propagated uh, a plant. So I think I was sitting in a restaurant that had like a living wall and just one little piece magically fell off the wall and I took it home with me and I popped it in some water and I think it was a basic philodendron philodendron cordatum so philodendron heart leaf 
yeah, stuck it in some water and watched it grow. And then I did end up giving that away to somebody else once it got bigger. It was a fun little journey. It was fun to watch the roots sprout out. I think it really does invoke like that childlike wonder when you can, you know, discover something new about plants. Me and my partner always go down to our plant room. It's a room, yes. And we're looking at sort of how different plants um, unfurl their leaves, how different nodes grow, where aerial roots are popping out. And that's awesome and very fun. But in terms of propagating, each plant is different. So I've had lots of failures in the same boat where it's sort of, I'll try doing the same thing where I stick it in water and it's just sort of melted or turned into mush. And then that's unfortunate, but it also happens. So it's one of those things you can learn from, <laughs> part of the plant parenthood journey. <laughs> and it's a learning journey and it's that curiosity that sparks that and that wonder of like, if I do put this thing in water, what will happen? Will it grow? Will it be a failure? And you don't know until you try unless you research them heavily. But I really do think that just giving it a go sometimes is really cool. We've just been growing the offcuts of our vegetables and it's so cool to see what actually grows. And, and a lot of things that I wouldn't have even thought to try growing have been really successful. And it's meant that we're able to, similar to your bean story, we're able to watch these things grow, especially when it's in water. It's awesome because you can see the process happening and you can track that day by day. But then also planting that out into a veggie garden or a planter and then being able to have your own kai or maybe having plants that you can gift to other people. It's just such a cool process. And I guess in some ways it is a circular process for some plants, depending on the plants. So it's quite sustainable to be able to do those things, especially if you're adding in the compost that you're using your food scraps and making compost or worm farms. It's so cool to be able to see what you can grow with your own hand. The circular process of it is like, it's kind of knowledge that in many ways, this generation is really learning because at least in New Zealand, you're not relying on your garden for your vegetables. You're relying on whatever supermarket has in stock. It's cool to be able to have that self-reliance uh, when you have just like you're armed with a little bit of knowledge about, you know, I really like this type of tomato. It's an heirloom tomato. I'm not going to get it at the supermarket. The only way I can get it is either spending, you know, a ridiculous amount of money or just kind of rolling up your sleeves and figuring it out. I think it's so fun it's so rewarding not only for you know your own personal uh, like knowledge growth but you're taking a lot of pressure off uh, the system so it were by by kind of finding where you're getting your own food or maybe using a plant as a structure or as a part of interior design rather than something that maybe made of something that is not renewable or uh, compostable yeah definitely an architecture student would you like to talk more about your studies and how plants play a part in that landscape architecture is like a little offshoot from architecture where we kind of aim to create spaces outdoors that stand the test of time it's a little bit more ephemeral compared to what architects do because they sort of have a defined 
sort of property boundary or box that they work within. Obviously, when you're outside, wind flows through. It's a ephemeral moving thing. Uh, you can really tell where the bird will fly or where the water droplet will run. You kind of have to work with nature's system. You have to you have to have an understanding about horticulture and sort of it's a multidisciplinary hodgepodge of people who work outside and how to make outside work for humans, which is a little bit interesting because it involves it used to really involve outdoor spaces that were just purely aesthetic, so pleasure gardens, places that people could enjoy. As usually, gardening was reserved for very upper class sort of people who have a lot of land and can even have a bit of land that they can just enjoy not even garden in Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think more recently landscape architecture has become a lot about mitigating all the effects from extreme weather events and other aspects about climate change that have put a lot of pressure on the traditional systems so Mm -hmm. landscape architecture is a bit of a mix now it used to be oh beautiful gardens will create like we'll put a this height tree here and the leaves complement that tree, which to an extent is definitely still like that. We still want to enjoy the beauty of nature, but it also has to have a little bit more of those considered factors that make the space stand the test of time, like I said. So it's that building of resilience into the landscape systems that we're seeing. And I guess with that, you put it so beautifully, the way in which nature moves and the way in which you have to really connect with that to understand it and then make your plans from there. If you were to be working with a client, what might that process look like? Yeah, so I've done some volunteer work for community gardens. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that looks like taking the real physical um, and sort of impeding aspects of a certain landscape and putting them down on paper so that we know what we're working with so when you're working with design constraints make the design so when you're constrained by something you you can kind of turn that into something that is the purpose so the form and the function match together if i heard like form over function function over form when you're working in a landscape context especially with sort of where we are now in terms of climate change and all the extreme weather events we have a lot of constraints so Mm. that could be pipes of power lines anything you're looking at outside it could be um, infrastructure that people have made or maybe a problem or something that we consider a problem uh, that we want to fix fix in quotation marks (laughs) Um, so it's just identifying a lot of those aspects and then figuring out what long-term material concrete solutions are there whether that be getting earthworks done for the long-term use of the space getting a retaining wall there getting any sort of outdoor feature that makes it accessible for humans or other organisms i think the benefit of landscape architecture is that it doesn't just have to benefit people you can make it benefit geckos birds you can design with them in mind if you just take that time to identify that that's a space they also live in so when you're working in architecture it's human spaces the landscape architecture is spaces Mm. (laughs) if that makes sense that's for everything when you're working with a client depends if they're looking for something beautiful 
or if they're looking to solve a problem specifically. There are lots of different ways you can assess a landscape and, and sort of help out whether it's just a, I want this type of beautiful like wildflower garden or a concreted patio. These are things that you'll, ha you'll have to work with what the land is already doing before you even shove a shovel into the ground because without a little bit of planning it can all really get pretty messy. Yeah. Those spaces as you talk about they they are just spaces they're utilized by so many different creatures and it makes me think when you're talking about that about the ways in which our animals interact with the environment and also the ways in which humans interact in those environments and I think something that's really cool in that planning phase is often studying those things and studying you know if you're looking at a park that is used by the community how do people already move through that area are they walking across that area are they walking on certain pathways do does there need to be another pathway somewhere that there's not are they utilizing the trees do there need to be more trees do they need to have fruit trees in those areas is there a need for a playground seating areas all of those things that help those interactions become stronger between humans and the environment that they're in, but also in the ways that those species are moving, as you say, like if there is a rare kind of butterfly being found in the little tussock areas or along the gravel, being able to create spaces that allow for the enhancement of the environment in those areas and also the science communication in those areas. So maybe the signposts so that people know what this gravel area is it's not just a space that's been chucked there or a pile of logs it's a bug hotel or a really niche environment for a certain kind of creature that isn't found in many places and I think there's so much power in that design and it's so exciting to be able to work in that space yeah I agree I think it's it's a little overwhelming because you have to think of all these things but at the same time when you are sort of in tune with nature and you actually care about it and you're actually interested in it it's really easy I think the struggle sometimes working because uh, there's lots of different areas a landscape architect can work it's sort of you're wearing many hats mm. this is why it's so important like as landscape architects to be considering the like that multidisciplinary approach so sometimes it might be a super engineering problem so something that you'd need an engineer for and then sometimes it's 100 percent um working with ecologists or horticulturalists to understand what kind of revenge this place needs and i think it's really it's inspiring that i think these kinds of really important work are becoming more common like it is very necessary for revenge in many places in New Zealand for the survival of the human race and I do like to put it to that extreme because I think it is true I think if, if we want to live on this planet we can't ignore all the other things that helped us get where we are so that's all the plants all the bugs and making sure that what we do is fit for purpose what we're doing is appropriate for the space and reading the landscape and reading how humans have historically interacted with it and taking that cultural influence um, into the design as well because we're not sort of passive actors 
in the landscape at all. Uh, I think we have a massive influence over it. So it's good to bring our perspective and and the perspective of the the creatures that we might be interacting with or the plants and bugs. But yeah, the cultural engagement with landscape is something that I'm very blessed to have learned about at Unitech Pikafinga because there's a lot of cultural studies there. It's it's a journey of trying to merge all the disciplines to make something that doesn't just fall apart. So you've talked about climate change and the role that landscape architecture can play in building more resilient areas. I would love to hear more about how this could be incorporated into urban planning and what plants and infrastructure can look like in cities. Yeah, so landscape architects have to work pretty closely with urban planners and engineers. Some places don't need plant infrastructure or they can't have it for various reasons, like soil type or it's just not got enough water in the area, which is very rare for Auckland. I think Auckland is a very uh, watery city at the moment. Mm -hmm. I'd be looking at what kind of plant infrastructure. Is a green wall the only kind of green infrastructure? No. There are ways to manage stormwater with rain gardens. The impact that that has on the surrounding landscape, I think, is a sliding scale. NZILA recently had a speaker... New Zealand Institute of Landscape Architects. I can't remember his name, but he mentioned how although rain gardens are really efficient infrastructure, they're not necessarily carbon neutral. There's a lot of concrete involved in making urban spaces appear green. So it's that fine balance. Sometimes a concrete city or an area that is heavily concreted, that might not be the area where you put a plant. And that's sad. I think as time goes on, the more and more developments are having to include that kind of infrastructure as a prerequisite to even getting any resource consent for the project, which is wonderful because it's leaving less places kind of becoming cultural deserts in a way. So cultural like um, plant culture, lichen culture, any kind of culture, human culture, it's just a block. Um, mm. We don't want that. Everyone who lives in a city wants it to be a a space that they kind of feel proud of and that they also can identify with so when you're thinking of like walking through a city sometimes you'll imagine like that one really nice beautiful tree that's really big and it's lasted and it's it's significant uh, to you as you're walking it's really important to maintain how important treescapes are for neighborhoods and places where people are walking because without that a lot of urban spaces actually fail to function how they they want to function so if it's a commercial zone even if you're working with a client who's doing super commercial stuff if you're ignoring the transitory spaces between commercial zones you're not going to have very good clientele so it's not just for aesthetics it's 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 the, the stormwater infrastructure, but also the would people be able to walk from one side of the city to the other in full sun without mm -hmm. having a little bit of tree shade, without having a little bit of, of seating areas to take a breather. So it's necessary for 
a lot of our systems to function, to have the transitory spaces, value the human experience first. Especially in urban spaces, you don't get a lot of um, valuing what birds are doing in Auckland CBD. Um, although that, that mindset, I think, is changing now. And there are a lot of projects which do involve nestling places for birds specifically to sit in. We're no longer doing sort of anti-bird architecture. Mm -hmm. They're part of the space, which is it's beautiful to see in cities. Urban planners and landscape architects are more and more valuing from a topographical perspective how much more we can add green to a map. I think is the good. Also changing the way in which we're thinking right from the beginning rather than creating the concrete jungle and then retrofitting the green. Like it, it doesn't work. <laughs> and it's it's really important that we are factoring those things in when we are creating this new infrastructure. And it's something that I've found really interesting. Auckland has done really well at that in terms of roading, in my opinion. And they build these massive motorways, but they really do think about the native plantings that they're doing along the sides of those areas. In my opinion, it's one of the most planted road areas that I've seen before. And it's sad to think of that when you're going to these more rural environments that have so much potential for that, and it's been left out of the planning, and therefore the funding doesn't reach the plants, because that tends to be the last thing that gets done. As we learn more about New Zealand's ecosystems and we value a lot of native plantings more, whether that be in a city or in a rural space, we can't just look at green and say, green, good, green, perfect. That's uh, very eco and it's mitigated here. Any effects that we have mitigated. <laughs> so, yeah, in terms of like agricultural spaces, there's a massive problem there. I think that Sometimes urban spaces, although there's a lot of impervious surfaces, which can lead to a lot of runoff, which can lead to a lot of heavy metals and waterways, there, there are ways to fix that. We know how to do it. We just need to do it. Like agricultural spaces are like a whole different ball game because of how we sort of, we need them to be productive and we don't want to put a whole lot back. So it's interesting. I do think that Auckland has some really good mitigation. The quality of plants that are along some spaces are thriving and that's wonderful to see when it's not just sort of native plants chucked in and three months later they're all dead sticks hanging out of the ground <laughs> they are being cared for and that's really important but in rural spaces I do kind of worry because the nature of having a green pasture so many people would view that as something that is eco and it's interesting because a lot of our cultural perceptions influence how we treat a landscape but our hands are not clean there you know we've we've shaped it sort of beyond what it ever could have been so sometimes mitigation involves going above and beyond what might have originally been there when you first saw it to to treat where it's at now i think that's something that people are doing it's just a bit of a tough sell because farmers have to spend their own money on plants and they're already not getting paid a lot yeah exactly again it's one of those things that there needs to be the methods in place to actually allow for that sustainable practice to happen and currently we're missing that and so it's it yeah it puts people in a really hard position
climate resilient landscapes let's talk about that i think there is no better technology for stabilizing climate than utilizing plants and wetlands they're like an ancient powerhouse like a technology that has been refined for millions of years and something that we don't have as much of anymore which is so uh, important for the climate is those mature trees and mature wetlands and spaces that have that whole sort of that organic capillaries of the earth you know we understand uh, trees you know the little diagram we see when we're kids like trees make oxygen and we breathe oxygen and we breathe out co2 and trees take in co2 it's not like we're like unaware about how plants and wetlands benefit life on earth and it's it's fascinating that in urban spaces and suburban spaces, we will hold plants to a totally different standard based on sort of how inconvenient it is for our development. So even if it is a, like a beautiful, mature, kaikatea tree, if despite the fact that it is maybe stabilizing important ground that's right next to someone else's house that is also on an overland flow path, so there's a lot of water in the area, despite that, if there is more financial incentive to develop something else there, that will happen. So it's interesting that we're relearning how the the fiscal benefits of keeping wetlands and plants thriving far outweigh the cost of or the, the benefit you could get from getting rid of it. It's It's not actually a long-term investment in housing or in roading or in anything to get rid of plants. Like that is antithetical to the journey that we need to be taking as people who live in a resilient country and a climate-focused country. And I think it's positive to, that we're having this conversation, but in industry, it's it's hard to get that across. And also there are so many places that are ignored. Mm-hmm. There are so many places that, although they could have such potential for mitigating the effects that we have on the environment they're kind of left to grow weeds or left to be ignored because the person whoever owns that land maybe doesn't want to deal with it or it's it's too much money to deal with it it's really interesting and i i was thinking of a best term i was like it's not a double-edged sword and i hate saying to like kill two birds with a stone maybe we (laughs) could say like grow two uh shoots from a plant because we're talking about propagation but there's so many things that like if we if we were able to keep those areas then the climate change impacts would be way less and it would also be more resilient to this the smaller impacts that we would have potentially so there's a lot of solutions built into these things but the interesting thing is with gorilla planting especially in Auckland like there are very few places that I would actually say, even though they might be, you know, a bit of invasive species problem, there are very few places I'd say that no one cares about. When you're in an urban space, the weed growing out of the side of a cracked wall, it might be the most beautiful thing that you see that day. The The way that we value that can't be ignored because that is the, the real long-term value that you'll see the returns in, you know? You like if people want to invest in something long term, it's going to be that. It's going to be nature, and it always will be. Uh, societies that have gone so far in history have all been societies that mastered irrigation. Right? It's like 
we just need to master the fact that, especially in Auckland, especially in New Zealand, it's wetlands, like most of it. I absolutely love that. And when you said gorilla planting, my face just lit up. I wish everyone could have seen that reaction. For those who are listening and don't know what gorilla planting is, do you want to just explain that? Yeah. Gorilla planting is the act of improving a space that is not yours. Basically, it's where people chuck seeds into places or plant trees in places that uh, are, like I said, like those ignored corners. It might be like a berm that just has some grass on it or like a weird corner that someone didn't plan for in between some pathways that's just grass or nothing. And taking that space and using it for something good. So with that, I actually have thought of very obviously gorilla planting our local park because they've just redone a pathway and it and it does look amazing but they didn't plan for the planting along the sides and it's all blank gardens and I'm like hmm I have a lot of akiake a lot of harakeke and tikoka popping up porphyry as well in our garden that we can't like we don't have the capacity for all of the plants that pop up and so maybe I'm just gonna collect them up and go and plant them because the worst that can happen in that case is that they get pulled out maybe they get stolen hopefully if they're stolen they get planted because like that's beneficial right absolutely uh Auckland Council has started putting QR codes on significant trees that they pop in park this is the PSA to engage with the trees that are recently planted in your local parks keeping them alive is it's it's like up to council but it's also it's your park you know mm. it's fun to fun to keep an eye on all of them I've definitely utilized the technology available to me to do some sneaky it's it's good because you feel sneaky doing it but it's actually like a good thing to do it's not like you're like vandalizing anything you're just happily like i don't know diversifying an ecosystem adding to an environment and then maybe like five years later when you come back to that park sometime you'll have that nostalgic little moment and you see a beautiful tree there definitely think if people feel rebellious they should be doing those sneaky things the gorilla planting i i agree it's the best way to be sneaky (laughs) yep yep amazing My fun question for you today is what does your dream home look like? I think that my dream home is inspired with like low impact living and living as close to nature as possible. So as a like a landscape architect, obviously I get the skills of being able to draw stuff. So I'm very thankful that my partner has helped me with thinking about stuff like solar panels, you know, reuse building materials. I want a conservatory made out of all hodgepodge windows. I don't want plants to be like an afterthought in that in that house. I definitely think oh, I'd rather have something that's built built into the house. So my dream home, it probably looks like every 
millennials Pinterest board, but just slightly like crustier because I don't care if it's reduce, reuse, recycle. I will do that. I don't want luxury. I want luxury in how like uh how much life is in it. Uh, fireplace. I want water to be heated. You know, like locally. I want it all to be low impact. But with that, I think you get a lot of character. You know, that's I think everyone's dream home because we don't have the luxury to be able to sort of choose whatever stuff we we want for our house anymore. It's sort of like you get what you got, and however many plants you can fit in there, that's that's what makes it your own. So I'm so excited to have a house though. Hopefully one day. <laughs> Oh, definitely. I think when I asked you that question, I was like, I bet it's going to be like a little cottage in the woods. Like, that's the vibe, right? Like, kind of hobbit hole, like beautiful, green, homemade, you know, really grounded is the word that is coming to mind. I can imagine these massive, like, veggie gardens with, like, mixed croppage. I actually thought the other day, I had a momentary thought where I was like, you know what? We do have a lawn because we have dogs and that's necessary. However, what if we just planted our entire backyard as a forest and just had a forest where we could explore? Maybe. That's a great option. (laughs) It is a great option. The groundedness of a house, so important. Like, how are you supposed to relax somewhere that you, you wouldn't invite all sort of little creatures into? So pets are super important. I have a cat. Uh, so having houseplants sometimes isn't, it doesn't work sometimes, <laughs> but I feel so privileged that I get to learn about plants and nature and bringing it into sort of how we live because it's so, it's like fun. It's like a constant full-time, not a hobby, but like, like a, it's like a spiritual practice almost. We are always investigating what plants are doing, what nature's doing. And it's just, it just makes you feel like it's all worth it, right? Even though it's like, oh, I have to live in this crappy rental. I have lived in rentals where I have gone into the backyard with a newashi in one hand and just cut all of the, the kaikui grass that's been taking over because the landlord didn't want to maintain it mm-hmm. and left the plant, adding something good to it. I love it. So I can't own it, but, it, you know... <laughs> And when you do, it's going to be the most magnificent place and you're going to feel so much like deep passion for your place and being able to share that with other people as well. And I I can imagine it will be like a community home for sure. I agree. Thank you so much for coming on the Seed Pod today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking all things plants, all things landscape architecture, the deep connections between us and nature and our creatures that we see around us every day and bringing that back into the cities as well. So I really appreciate this chat and it's been such an honour. The honour's all mine. It's oh. it's wonderful to hear that, you know, there's a culture of people who are nerds like this, got to make the world a little greener. For sure. That's what we're here for. We're here to nerd out. It's the most amazing thing and we have so much fun doing it. Now, if you'd like to join our community, you can head over to our link tree. That's linktr.ee forward slash the seed pod underscore nz. 
This is a place where we can really share in our deep nature connection stories through our social media, our episodes, and our upcoming website. So if you'd like to stay tuned, you can also head over to our mailing list and sign up there. Thanks so much.